This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone, and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast, with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. A lot of people don't realize that the DEA has the largest international presence of any federal law enforcement agency. The command and control threats to our country for transnational organized crime are foreign. So you have to have the relationships with the foreign international counterparts if you want to be effective going after these threats. The opioid crisis that's enveloping our country. Do you see this as more of a national security emergency or just a public health emergency? I see it as obviously a public health emergency. It's unprecedented. We've never had this in the history of our country happen. But where it becomes a national security emergency is the connectivity between the drug traffickers and the terrorists that are out there trying to destroy our way of life. Because the cartels are bombing this country every day from the southwest border, and they are putting this poison in the streets, and people just don't know what they're taking. I'm Sandy Winnefeld, filling in for Michael Morell. Michael is traveling this week and asked me to fill in as a guest host in his absence. Since Michael and I are old friends, I agreed to help. He'll be back to hosting soon. I should mention that I serve on the board of Raytheon, which sponsors Intelligence Matters. Raytheon has not asked me to host the podcast and is not compensating me for doing so. And the views expressed in this week's episode don't necessarily reflect Raytheon's views. Our guest today is Derek Maltz, who spent 28 years at the Drug Enforcement Administration before retiring in 2014. For the last 10 years of his career, Derek was the agent in charge of the Special Operations Division, with 30 agencies three countries, and the New York Police Department coordinating efforts against international criminal networks. The SOD was part of a team whose work led to the capture of Mexican drug lord Joaquin El Chapo Guzman in 2016 and whose bilateral global investigations unit tracked down some of the world's most notorious arms and drug traffickers. Derek has witnessed firsthand the evolution of the opioid, heroin, and fentanyl crises engulfing this country and joins us today for a wide-ranging conversation. As many of you know, this is a very personal topic for me, having lost my son to an overdose of fentanyl-laced heroin in 2017. I'm Sandy Winnefeld, filling in for Michael Morell. 
And this is Intelligence Matters. Derek, thank you for joining us today and for agreeing to share some of your insights on a topic that's personally and professionally important to both of us. And thank you for your longtime service to our country. I want to start with your background, how you got interested in working for the Drug Enforcement Agency, and then move on to some other topics. You ran DEA's Special Operations Division for almost 10 years, which seems like an incredibly long time to have that prestigious job. When most people think of special operations, they visualize Delta Force or Navy SEALs and clandestine operations in faraway parts of the world. Can you tell us a little bit about SOD, as we'll call it on the program? Yes, Sandy, uh, thank you for having me today. And I want to thank you for your years of dedicated service. And I'm sorry about your son. And I'm happy to be here to uh, share my experiences, not only in the DEA, but my life experiences on this on this issue. So, yes, my father was a... uh, dedicated DEA agent for 30 years and coming out of college, like most kids, they don't really know what they want to do. My father kind of pushed me into the direction of the DEA, which I thank God every day that I got the opportunity to work with the DEA because there was never a day that I was upset about going to work. I really enjoyed the mission of the DEA and what we were trying to do, and that's to save lives. So yes, over time after working in New York for most of my career and actually had an opportunity to be the supervisor of the heroin task force in New York City with NYPD, state police, and the DEA, working for a legendary boss, Bill Mokler. So I got a lot of experience back in the day on the South American heroin program. But then ultimately, I got promoted to that drug task force as the chief. And then eventually, I got the job at the Special Operations Division here in Virginia. And when I got there in 2005, there were nine agencies. And when I left, there were 30 agencies, three countries, and the NYPD. I had a lot of fun working at the SOD operation. So it almost sounds like you have 58 years experience watching DEA because I'm sure you were paying attention as a young man. Well, actually, it's funny you say that because my father used to take me out on surveillance at 13. And there's a famous story about me. His call sign was 701. I was 701 and a half. (laughs) That's great. So Uh, how have you seen over that time the Drug Enforcement Agency evolve? It must have changed a lot in that time. Well, I was lucky because I worked at the Special Operations Division prior to 9-11. And then, of course, after 9-11, I was luckily promoted. My brother died in the U.S. Air Force in uh, Operation Enduring Freedom. So I was very excited to be able to work in a multi-agency environment because, obviously, the only way we have any shot in our future is if our interagency kind of works together and we use the best and brightest in America to go after this threat, all of these threats. Every day they seem to be evolving even more. But the DEA, a lot of people don't realize that the DEA has the largest international presence of any federal law enforcement agency. And why that's important, Sandy, is the command and control threats to our country for transnational organized crime are foreign. So you have to have the relationships with the foreign international counterparts if you want to be effective going after these threats. So the DEA has had many years of experience working in the international environment. And so I didn't work overseas, unfortunately. I wish I would have. But I saw from working at SOD just the incredible capabilities around the world to go after the threats. Okay. Now, with that in mind, clearly, DEA and SOD in particular have a really important set of relationships with state and local law enforcement agencies. But since this program is entitled Intelligence Matters, can you give our listeners a sense for what kind of relationships SOD has developed over the years with the various intelligence agencies and other entities in our national security apparatus? 
Well, okay. So, like I said, when I got there personally, and thank God my predecessors did such a good job at building the foundation of SOD, I was lucky to go there at a time where it was after 9-11 and the U.S. government understood the nexus between crime and terror. So we had a very important obligation to kind of unite the interagency workforce. I call it the force of good. And so we always had a strong partnership with the intelligence community. And as time went on, we realized the importance of working closely with DOD because the warriors of DOD were on the front lines in Afghanistan and Iraq and Africa and different parts of the world. And the DEA has this network of confidential informants around the world. So we were in a great position to provide intelligence to the military as they were out there on the front lines. So we really enjoyed building the partnerships. And I met some of the best and brightest military commanders when I was at the SOD. And I was very impressed by the way they treated DEA. And so it was kind of like, you know, the country's under attack. We have all these threat streams. We're all in this together. We all have kids and grandkids and nephews and nieces and friends. We have to be united. And that was kind of how I I went to work every day, just keeping in mind that we weren't, it wasn't about DEA ever. It was about the interagency power. And that's the kind of way I looked at it. And that's the message that I delivered to the troops at SOD. And so I really enjoyed working and watching it grow. And like I said, when I retired in 2014, there were 30 agencies, three countries, and the NYPD. Actually, Commissioner Kelly contacted me and asked for a briefing on narco-terrorism. And as a result, we were able to uh, put a full-time NYPD employee at SOD. And it was very important to me because they, every day of the week, have to protect the citizens of New York from another 9-11. So we had a lot of intelligence, and I wanted to make sure our intelligence was available to the NYPD. Okay. One of the things you've referred to is our relationships with other countries. And it's always fascinated to me to imagine the actual partnership on the ground. First of all, those countries allowing a U.S. law enforcement agency on their territory to cooperate closely with them, not only at the command and control level you've talked about, but actually engaged in operations. Can you give us just a short sense of what that's like on the ground? Yes. And I I like to use the example of Colombia because, you know, in my experience, Colombia was like the model for interagency cooperation and bilateral investigations. And not just on the law enforcement side, but on the prosecution side, which is key, because if you want to have an impact against these transnational criminal organizations, you have to have the prosecution. But the story I like to tell is like a lot of my friends that were in the DEA as young agents, they were working with young colonels and young police officers from the Colombian National Police. But then when they came back as the leaders to run the country of Colombia, right, mm-hmm. for the DEA, they actually united with generals that have worked their way through the ranks, their old buddies that they were on the ground with. Yeah. So there was a mutual trust and respect for the mission. And what we in DEA always respected so much about the Colombian National Police was these guys were on the front lines. There were bombs going off. There were people getting killed every day. And so they were in a war for years, right, with the Pablo Escobar days and the Medellin cartel and the Cali cartel, North Valle cartel. So these guys were in a war, and, they, you know, they were great, great partners, great information sharing. And, again, you have to have the vision that we're in it together because we all have to fight this together. I think a lot of our listeners can relate to that because many of them in their own disciplines have grown up alongside partners in foreign countries, and now they find themselves suddenly in leadership positions, and there's a natural affinity there. Exactly. Derek, let's now turn to the opioid crisis that's enveloping our country. 
the administration estimates that this crisis alone is costing us $504 billion per year in lost economic activity, increased health care costs, other costs like the need for foster care for over 70,000 kids per year. We also know that overall addiction fatalities cost 72,000 lives last year, the majority of which were from the opioid crisis. Do you see this as more of a national security emergency or just a public health emergency? Well, I see it as obviously a public health emergency. It's unprecedented. We've never had this in the history of our country happen. Kids dropping like every day of the week. And as a matter of fact, right now, they estimate about once every, let's say, 11 minutes, somebody is dying from an opioid overdose. That's amazing. And let me just put it in perspective for the listeners. So 9-11, the Afghan war and the Iraqi war, okay, we've lost about 9,700 people. That's 13.5% of what we lost last year in drugs alone, okay? It's the number one cause of injury-related deaths in America. And so, yes, it's a public health emergency. But where it becomes a national security emergency is the connectivity between the drug traffickers and the terrorists that are out there trying to destroy our way of life. So there is a connectivity there, which is really, really important as we move forward in how we have to address this crisis. Okay. Well, it would seem, I've always thought, that this opioid epidemic is the result of sort of a trifecta, starting with the proliferation of both legal and illegal prescription painkillers, a second leg that was heroin, black tar heroin, and white heroin, and the third leg is, of course, deadly fentanyl. So let's take those one at a time from the Drug Enforcement Agency's role and perspective. How would you describe how Special Operations Division, or DEA if you prefer, intersects that explosion of painkillers, which was fostered by some elements of the pharmaceutical industry and then further extended by doctors and pill mills and the like. Uh, how, how do you interact with that particular element of the crisis? Okay, so let me give you my personal experience because, you know, like everybody else, I learned over the years just from being exposed to this crisis. So as a young supervisor in New York City, my first exposure to heroin was the explosion of the Colombian South American cartels getting involved with moving white heroin, very, very pure heroin on the streets of New York. And at the time, they were using their existing distribution networks of Dominicans and Puerto Rican distribution groups to push this high-quality heroin on the street. The reason they were doing that, because it's like any other business, they were trying to diversify their product line. They had cocaine, they had crack in the past, now they had heroin. And they were really, really clever because they had a marketing scheme with these glassine bags. They were stamping them different names just to attract the addicts on the street. But what was different, Sandy, is that this was actually a whole new type of heroin user. It was kids from suburban communities that we had never seen before coming into the Bronx, coming into Washington Heights, buying this white heroin. Unfortunately, because it was like 80 to 90 percent pure, they were getting addicted right from the start. Now, that was basically in the, in the mid-90s. But at the same time, the pharmaceutical companies started to produce these very, very powerful opioids that they were pushing out for pain. Really, really powerful. And obviously, if you're dying from cancer and you have really, really severe pain, these pills are awesome, right? You need this medicine to you know, eliminate the pain. But unfortunately, what was happening is the doctors and the pharmacies were actually overprescribing. And they were basically providing this, these pain meds to kids and others in, in the U.S. 
and they were overprescribing. So you go in for a root canal, and the doctor's giving you 100 OxyContin. Like, why do you need 100 OxyContin? Take some Advil, right? So I think there was a big education um, gap there. But unfortunately, Sandy, what was happening is now on the East Coast of the United States, you started having an explosion of addiction between the pills and now this white heroin, you know, all up and down the East Coast, right? Philadelphia, New York, New Jersey, Boston, New Hampshire, and in Ohio, Kentucky. But then we've always had black tar heroin coming in from Mexico on the West Coast, right? So people were getting addicted to the, the black tar heroin. But what really was interesting, if you look at the business aspects of this, the Colombian drug entrepreneurs realized after some time that they were too vulnerable by sending the white heroin directly into the U.S. for prosecution and extradition. So what did they do? They turned over this white heroin business to the Mexican cartels, just like they turned over the cocaine business to the Mexican cartels. And the Mexican cartels were also geniuses when it comes to exploiting vulnerabilities. So what did they do? They started going to the areas of the U.S. where people were addicted to these pain meds. And it became the perfect storm. So I could tell you Ohio, West Virginia, New Hampshire, which had a huge population of opioid abuse, right? That's where the cartels went to sell their heroin. But what happened, Sandy, is this basic economics. If I'm addicted to this poison, I can't afford it. You know what we started seeing? Kids are burglarizing their own family, stealing the mother's jewelry, the engagement rings, stealing all kinds of stuff in the houses, doing burglaries in the neighborhood just to get the money to go buy the pills on the street. But the problem was the pills were too expensive. So now they needed their fix. They needed to be, they were addicted, right? So they had to go to the alternative, which was this white, powerful heroin. But unfortunately, the cartels also run a business. And they realized for them to keep down their cost, they had to get the synthetic opioids, fentanyl, carfentanyl. And they were going right to China, right to the source. And they were getting the the very high-purity fentanyl and mixing it in with the powders in these Mexican labs. And unfortunately, they had no idea what they were doing. There was no quality control. So when the poison was then delivered into the U.S. all over the country and kids and other citizens were popping pills or they had no idea what they were taking. And, And that's what makes this so different and so dangerous, you know, because this is a situation, as you know firsthand, that can happen to any family in America. And so that's my fear is that kids that just don't know any better. And thank you very much for your safe project.us because it really is an amazing source of information for anybody to go out and learn about this. So every parent, every educator, every school, every college must start educating themselves to help these kids in our future. So, you know, the country is beginning to realize that there is an epidemic of opioid use in the country. And we're starting to see governments, state governments, local governments, federal governments step up to this crisis. And in fact, this most recently, we've, we've heard of a very, very slight decrease in opioid overdose fatalities. But this has happened before. Do you see it as an indication of progress? Is it too early to tell? And more importantly, do we risk losing the momentum in fighting this epidemic if we talk about a very slight downturn in fatalities? What are your thoughts on what the trajectory is of this crisis? My first thought is we shouldn't be celebrating anything for a long time because if one person is dying from this poison, it's enough for me because that's one family that's been destroyed, okay? But to answer your question, the statistics are very misleading, and I'll tell you why. 
because Narcan is saving lives every single day, and there is no way to measure that right now. So if we do see, you know, a decrease in, in fatalities, my personal opinion from talking to DEA agents and police officers on the streets of America is that Narcan is reversing the fatality. So we can't get, you know, too excited about that. So, of course, Narcan is the overdose reversing drug that can be administered and almost immediately strips opioids from our opioid receptors and can bring literally somebody right out of, of a potentially fatal overdose. So, exactly. So the statistics are a little bit murky there. Now, the president recently signed a bipartisan bill from Congress, maybe the only bipartisan thing that's happened in recent memory, that targets the opioid crisis by stemming the flow of fentanyl in the country and a whole other set of initiatives. Can you give us your thoughts on whether you think this is a, a good start Is it not enough? I think it's outstanding what the president and the attorney general and the DHS are doing every day to make this a priority. I think it's outstanding that law enforcement is actually working now again with the communities and the community leaders and the churches. I think that's outstanding. But again, we have to have a greater sense of urgency because this is just getting worse from my perspective. So we have to do more, okay? You know the old saying, you have to do more with less, right? Let's stop complaining about more resources and just get out there and do it. Because my buddies that are DEA agents, they go out at night. Instead of going home for dinner, they go out to the school. They don't get paid extra for doing that. But they do it because that's their passion. That's their mission, right? So we have to have a lot more people out there that are stepping up to the plate and educating the folks. And the other thing, Sandy, is that we need to get these celebrities and these athletes more engaged because they're role models to the kids. So I'll give you a a success story right here, which is unbelievable what I saw. So Jim Wahlberg and Mark Wahlberg, great Americans up in Boston, connected with the DEA, uh, New Hampshire. They had a big, you know, summit, they called it, up in New Hampshire. And they had 8,000 kids in this auditorium, in this this facility. And I got to tell you, the attorney general came up there and did a great presentation The DEA New Hampshire, John Delana, who is a friend of mine, was hosting the event. But we need more of that around the country. And the engagement with media, the public media campaign is critical. And so, yeah, we're on the right track. I think we're on the right track. I think we have some good momentum. Recently, there was a summit in D.C. that the attorney general led. And there was a lot of success stories that they had that put on the table. But I want to tell you that we got to be cautious with this because – You know, we don't want to give the public this false sense that, you know, we have this under control because we don't have it under control because the cartels are bombing this country every day from the southwest border and they are putting this poison in the streets and people just don't know what they're taking. Okay, so let me do a couple of lightning around questions with you. And I'm first going to I'll put you on the spot just a little bit. You've been out of the DEA now for what, four years? Yes. And you've had a chance to sort of contemplate this. We have found that DEA has been a little resistant to some harm reduction approaches, such as needle exchanges, safe use sites that are, you know, well-intentioned to try to prevent overdoses, spread of disease, vector people into treatment. The high-intensity drug trafficking area, folks, which is very often manned by former DEA agents and do some great work, are a little more supportive of that. Now that you've had a chance to look in perspective, how do you feel about that, that sort of cooperation between law enforcement and harm reduction? Okay, great question. I mean, a lot of my buddies, including the uh, national leader, Mike McDaniel in Houston, are HIDA directors, and I speak to these folks every day. A former guy that just worked for me in New York, John Weiner, is the HIDA director out in the Northwest HIDA in Seattle. 
So I am very happy to see the progress that the Hyattas are making with their education campaigns. And I got to say, I mean, look, they're really good DEA agents are focused every day on one thing, arresting bad guys. That's their mission. Now, unfortunately, you know, for years, you know, that was what they were doing. And obviously that wasn't good enough, right? We need a more comprehensive strategy to bring all of this stuff together. So what I always say is like, you know, don't be critical of the DEA alone. I don't mean you personally, but the public has to understand the DEA's job is to enforce the Controlled Substance Act and arrest bad guys. And that's what they do very well. The problem is, is that you have all these other components of this this crisis that we have to address. So what you just talked about with needle exchange programs, I'm not the expert in that area, but we have plenty of smart people in America that are experts. So we need them and we need them to come to the table and to share their ideas and their experiences to to have the most complete, comprehensive strategy to go after this. And I think that's what they're doing right now from what I see. Okay, Derek, how about other drugs that seem to be increasingly in use? We're seeing a resurgence of methamphetamines and cocaine. Some of those are actually being laced with fentanyl. And we also have this strange new drug, K2. How significant is it that drugs derived from plants are increasingly being replaced by synthetic analogs? Okay, so this this is another topic that I'm very passionate about because... So let's talk about the K2 and the spice. You've seen since April of this year, you've seen literally scenes of the Night of the Living Dead in Chicago, in New York, in Connecticut. New Haven. In New Haven, Connecticut, right, right across from Yale in the park, where people literally are walking down the streets and they're falling over. Because the K2, the compound that they're getting, is also from labs in China. And now people are putting rat poison in this particular compound. So people out there in the streets are bleeding from their eyes and their ears. They have no idea what they're smoking. They're not smoking synthetic marijuana. They're smoking poison. And so when you talk about methamphetamine, a lot of people are just putting aside methamphetamine problem. In a lot of the cities across America, meth is the number one problem. And you know what else people don't realize? is that the chemicals, the precursor chemicals to produce meth are coming from China and other countries in that region. And so China is not only sending fentanyl that's made in labs in China at very pure levels to Mexico, they're also sending these powerful precursors that are producing no longer a pound of meth, but hundreds and thousands of pounds of meth. We are seeing meth coming out of these industrial laboratories that we've never seen in the history of this country. When I was a young agent, if you seized one pound of meth, that was a lot. Now they're seizing six, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred pounds of meth. So there's problems with cocaine. There's problems with meth. There's problems with K2 spice. But there's a couple of common themes. One is right now the chemicals that are needed to produce these drugs and where they're coming from. And then the finished product, like you said. So the Mexicans no longer have to grow anything. They don't have to rely on the weather or the sun or the watering. They're just going to buy it already finished for $3,000, $5,000 a kilogram from China. And then they're going to make over a million dollars, a million and a half dollars from one kilogram of this powder. So, Derek, what do you think is the best approach that our country could take to persuading China to stop allowing the export of fentanyl and these precursor chemicals? Does it make it part of the resolution of a trade war? Or what are the tools we have that can get China to wake up and get serious about this because it's killing so many Americans? You know, that's a great question. And I don't have the best answer for that. I know that the DEA is opening up another office in China. I know that the Department of Justice and the DEA have worked very hard to educate the Chinese 
because a lot of these chemicals that are being exported are not necessarily illegal in China. They have 160,000 labs in China, you know, laboratories, chemical companies, right? And so it's, it's like an education process because they're making so much money. Why would they stop, you know, exporting this, this stuff? But the problem is, you know, that, for example, I know, like, I believe last year, because of the U.S. engagement with China, they started, like, scheduling some of these chemicals, like, what is it, NPP and 4ANPP, which are major precursors for the production of fentanyl. And so these particular Chinese labs and these Chinese people need to be educated better. But that's not going to solve this, right, because it's about making money. And there's another side of this, too, that a lot of people don't want to talk about, Sandy. You know, as a communist country, you know, it's not a bad plan to dump all this poison in America to kill our citizens. We know from our Afghanistan experience that major Taliban traffickers have said selling heroin to the West is a jihad against the West. It's the same philosophy, right, from their aspects in their minds. If they can divert attention, the U.S. government, the president, the attorney general to this crisis, they're accomplishing a lot because then they're going to attack our cyber systems and they're going to attack us in other ways. So, you know, it's a very difficult question. I'm not the expert, but obviously, you know, our State Department, our Department of Justice and others in the government could address this better. But I think it just has to be, you know, a greater sense of urgency. Right now, we don't have that. So let me bring up another potentially controversial topic, which is the marijuana industry. That has evolved over years in my lifetime from the importation production, whatever, of fairly weak strains of marijuana when we were kids, to now the legalization in some states, medical marijuana, and of course, the fact that it's now genetically engineered to be much more potent than it used to be. How is DEA coping with this really complex problem that's facing our country? Well, it's very complex because you have the states that have legalized it, like in Colorado. So like in many examples, like the local police don't even want to go out with the DEA in certain enforcement situations because there might be some marijuana involved and they don't want to be criticized by the public and stuff like that because it's becoming a political issue. But again, I'm not an expert on the impact of of legalizing marijuana. But if you look at some of the statistics coming out of Colorado, with fatalities in in driving while smoking pot and stuff like that. We have to look further at what's happening to our communities. But, you know, one thing that people have to realize is that there's always going to be a black market. The Mexican cartels are going to undercut the legal industry so they can push their marijuana on the streets of America. And that's just the way it is. I mean, that's kind of what they do with all their drug business, right? They're going to find out how to sell their product throughout America to make money. So it's a very, very difficult situation. But, you know, at the end of the day, the job of any leader is to eliminate confusion. Right now, we have a lot of confusion because some states it's legal, some states it's not. It's a violation of federal law. So what do we do? They have to clarify that. Congress has to step up and the experts in the country have to step up on this topic. So because so many of our listeners are interested in intelligence matters, as I mentioned earlier, I know that there's always been a good relationship between DEA and the CIA. I've witnessed that myself as the commander of Northern Command. CIA Director Gina Haspel has recently pledged that the agency would increase its efforts to combat opioids entering the United States. Can you give us a sense for how DEA and CIA would work together in a counter-narcotics effort? Okay, so one of the things that has to be done is we have to get a little better direction on the interaction, because obviously the CIA has so many unbelievable capabilities that they use every day to keep our country safe. 
And they don't talk about it, obviously, because it's very sensitive. And, you know, the DEA is a law enforcement agency, has the job of prosecuting bad guys. So what I think is great, recently, if you noticed, the attorney general announced his new transnational crime strategy. And he documented or he designated five threats to this country. And two Mexican cartels, the Sinaloa cartel and the cartel Jalisco New Generation, were two of the five targets, along with Lebanese Hezbollah. Every one of these threats requires engagement from all the agencies, not just the CIA, the the NSA, uh, all the DIA, all the intelligence agencies that are out there collecting intelligence. The tricky part is how do you fuse everything together and come up with the best strategy, not for any one agency, but for the U.S. taxpayer? How do we keep the country the safest? Because in many cases, arresting a kingpin in Africa, let's say, may not be the best plan for the U.S. government. In the law enforcement's mind, it might be the best, but the intel community may have other really important, critical national security intelligence, so we have to communicate better. And, and I think that we're on that track now. So, Derek, in the time we have left, and understanding you're not a policymaker yourself, what's the single most important piece of advice that you would share with policymakers that are charged with helping solve this crisis? Well... It always starts with the education piece. It's amazing to me to see how uneducated not only the policymakers are, but the public. And it's not a disrespectful thing. They just have other things going on in their lives, right? So you have to start with the education piece. I mean, look, when I grew up, everybody smoked cigarettes, right? We used to be in a car with the parents and the windows were up. They were both smoking. Everything was fine. But as you grew up, you know, you were educated the dangers of cigarettes And now, like my kids, for example, they just can't even stand being around cigarette smoke, right? Because they've learned over the years. Well, we have to start educating the kids at the earliest ages. I don't understand why, for years after 9-11, we completely neglected the education of the dangers of drug abuse. And heroin has never gone away, by the way. Heroin has been around forever. But unfortunately for us, it used to be a very low purity And it's grown to be like, you know, very, very high purity. So it's getting more people addicted. But so the policymakers have to start opening their eyes. They don't know. You know, I'll give you an example. Like here in the Beltway, you know, they're making policies and some of them have never been down in the southwest border. They don't even know what the Border Patrol and ICE is dealing with every day. Right. And the CBP that are out there in the front lines. So you have to educate yourself because until you're educated about the problem, then you're not going to be able to come up with the solutions. And the other thing, Sandy, we have a great country. We're very smart people. You have to bring the experts to the table across the board. Well, Derek, that's a great way to wrap this up. I really want to thank you for your time and your insight today. I also want to tell you how much I admire your passion for this topic. We need more people with that kind of passion. It's been a great discussion. There are also a number of really important topics that we've only scratched the surface of, right? Counter-narco-terrorism and the like. So I hope that you'll come back sometime and join us so we can cover some of the rest of this very important ground. And I look forward to seeing you again in the future. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. And anything I could do to help, you know, drive the message about the dangers of this crisis, I'm, I'm here to help. That was Derek Maltz. I'm Sandy Winnefeld. Please join us again next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. 
The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.